Father, good, good morning to you, Snowden Baptist Church family. It is good to be in this building once again, worshiping the Lord together. Um, I have already very much benefited from and enjoyed the service. Uh, so it's just such a, it's, it's a highlight every week to come and be in worship together. Let's pray and then we will uh, jump back into the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, God. Your steadfast love, your hesed, endures forever. Lord, there's not much in our world that is enduring, but your steadfast love endures forever, and your word endures forever. Your word is as true this hour as it was when you first inspired and revealed it, and it will be true millennia down the road eons down the road, it will still be true. Your word endures forever. And we thank you, God, that you are with us right now and have been this morning. We pray now as we open your enduring word that, Holy Spirit, you would speak into our hearts and minds and uh, perhaps uh, redirect us, re-guide us onto the path of righteousness if some of us are straying. Uh, Encourage our hearts if we are sad and sorrowful this morning. Challenge us, Lord, toward righteousness for your namesake. Lord, uh, be God over your word and over this congregation. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I must say that last week uh, during the sermon time, as I sat in the pew listening to God speak through what Charles had prepared, uh, I was really moved and challenged. For me, the challenge came at several junctures of Charles's sermon, but it came particularly at the point where Charles did a brief review of the first four Beatitudes leading into the fifth Beatitude. Charles's review of what Jesus meant by poor in spirit and mourning over sin and being meek hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, God used that review to get me to look more closely at the contours of my own life. And God, in his redemptive way, but his firm way, was showing me just how far I still have to go in the spiritual life. So what I have been praying for as we travel through the Sermon on the Mount together happened to me last Sunday. Jesus got under my skin for his glory and for my great benefit. And so thanks goes to Charles for listening to the Spirit of God and for blessing us with that message. And if you haven't heard it, just a little spiritual commercial, please check our church website uh, where the messages are posted week by week. Well, this morning, uh, fellow disciples of Jesus, in our trek Through the Sermon on the Mount, we land on Matthew 5.8. I hope you have a Bible with you and that it's open, either physically, in book form, or on your device. We land on Matthew 5.8, which is Beatitude number 6 in this series of Beatitudes that kicks off Matthew chapter 5. The sixth Beatitude reads as follows. Makarios, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Now, it seems pretty clear that as Jesus spoke this particular beatitude, he had in mind the fourth verse of Psalm 24. But in Psalm 24, verse 3, which leads directly into verse 4, David had asked two rapid-fire questions. And the questions were, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, David is asking, Who is the person who would be able or who would be allowed to come into the presence of the holy God? And then in verse 4 of Psalm 24, David gives the answer. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. David's concern there in verse 4 is that a person must have clean hands and a pure heart if that person is to stand in the blazing holy presence of Almighty God. The phrase clean hands in that verse refers to a person's actions. We do things with our hands. Clean hands has to do with external activities and deeds. And on the other hand, the phrase pure heart has to do with the inward life, with a person's integrity. Pure heart is about inner motivations, inner intentions, Choices and attitudes. David says the person who would stand in the presence of Almighty Holy God is a person who will be characterized by this happy combination of both clean hands and a pure heart. Now, in the time of Jesus, in the time when Jesus was on the mount preaching his sermon, In that time, there was a developing, rather complicated rabbinic tradition that placed its entire emphasis on the clean hands aspect of things. In other words, the great stress amongst rabbis, including the famous Rabbi Hillel, who lived only one generation prior to Jesus, the great stress was on externals on regulations and rules for the cleanliness of all manner of vessels, stipulations for ritual washing, guidelines for the purging of homes, etc. Well, Rabbi Jesus comes along in Matthew 5.8, and essentially he says here in this beatitude, I want to concentrate more on the pure heart aspect of Psalm 24.4 and less on the clean hands aspect, although the clean hands aspect, Jesus would say, has an importance about it. Jesus is saying here, I want to deal more with how the inner stuff, pure heart, 
must be the necessary wellspring of the outer stuff, the clean hands that you Pharisees are emphasizing. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Now we really see the concern that Jesus has for connecting purity of heart, inner, the inner self, to the aspect of clean hands, the outer self. We see his concern for this connection in a place like Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28. In that passage, Jesus chastises, there's no other way to put it, he chastises the scribes and the Pharisees for their obsession with externals to the neglect of the internals. Jesus says there, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, number one, first, clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside also may be clean. And Jesus continues, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, friends, the Pharisees, to quote the very vivid and very descriptive words of the Puritan Thomas Watson, the Pharisees were like a rotten post laid in vermilion color, like a fair chimney piece gilded without, but within, nothing but soot. With the Pharisees, the outer was in disagreement and it was in disconnection with the inner. But friends, I think we have to resist the urge to distance ourselves too much from this attitude of the Pharisees. Let's not hold it at arm's length too much, or let's beware of holding it at arm's length. The Pharisees were just like many of us can be, concerned to be spotless and praiseworthy on the external front, known to others for our pious observance in externals, Perhaps because of a love affair with the reputation that comes from being that way, we love the social accolades that might come from appearing pious on the outside. We love to be known as civil, as externally upstanding people who are known to never drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. But meanwhile... Meanwhile, 
On the inside, in the inner life, we might be very sick. All the while, we may be harboring a secret disdain for the things of God. Though we talk a good talk, we may be unbelieving on the inside and really not troubled very much by it, though our external words might be saying otherwise. We might be people like the Pharisees who have just enough religion to make them miserable people. Well, Jesus expresses his divine concern about this state of affairs in Matthew 5.8. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the undivided in heart. The inner much must match the outer and vice versa. In another place, in this same gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 15, 7 and 8, Jesus goes after the scribes and Pharisees again on this same matter of clean hands or outer actions not matching with purity of heart or the inner self. And in this case, he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, again, this is Matthew 15, 7 and 8, he says, you hypocrites... There it is again. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, with the outer externals, but their heart, the inner person, is far from me, far from me. So, friends, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was always concerned, wasn't he, about this We could call it an incoherence, an incoherence that he saw in people when the externals did not match the internals, when the outward profession didn't jibe with the inward nature. Jesus pointed it out, and this morning he's pointing it out to us. So what does the phrase pure in heart mean exactly in our beatitude? In Matthew 5, 8. Well, for starters, we could say that to be pure in heart before God is to be undivided in our very selves. It is to be undivided in our very selves. To be pure in heart is to not be duplicitous in our inner and our outer in our public life, and in our private life. Or if you prefer, as R.T. France has put it, the pure in heart is the person whose inward nature corresponds with his or her outward profession. Again, the person whose inward nature corresponds with his or her outward profession. To be pure in heart is, as John Stott once put it, it is to live life both in public and in private, completely transparent before God and people. To be pure in heart, friends, is so to treasure God that 
impurities, which John Piper has defined as anything that takes God's place or lessens the degree of our faith and our love for God, so to treasure God that impurities go away. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Not one of us, not one of us, doesn't matter who you are, none of us completely and totally and fully match the descriptions that I just gave. Not one of us can legitimately claim that he or she is utterly pure in heart. All of us, all of us, even if we're regenerated believers, All of us live right now like a glass of tap water. A glass of tap water is full of a liquid that is made up of, chemistry lesson from grade 9 or 10, made up of two hydrogens and one oxygen. Because after all, it's water. But the tap water also invariably has impurities in it. Traces of chlorine, hormones, pesticides even, salts. Even as believers, we are like tap water. Contaminants and impurities still exist. As believers, we are on our way to full and utter purity of heart, but none of us are there yet. Would you agree? I hope you would. And with this in mind, I think what may be helpful for us is to tie the sixth beatitude about purity in heart back to the second beatitude about mourning. And and there we said the mourning was specifically over sin. So let me ask you this question. Are you a person who mourns over your lack of purity of heart? Do you find yourself actually mourning often about the stubborn pig-headedness of your sin? Do you find yourself mourning over your impurities? If so, friend, it's a happy sign that you are on your way to full and utter purity of heart if there is that sense of genuine mourning over your lack of purity. As the Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote, he said this, and I want you to listen to this carefully. He said, where there is a study of purity and a loathing ourselves for our impurity, this is to be pure in heart. Again, where there is a study of purity... We want purity and a loathing of ourselves for our impurity. This is to be pure in heart. So to be dissatisfied, dissatisfied with your current state of purity is a sign that God is at work in your heart. 
God accepts your desire to be pure in heart, that desire that you have to be pure before Him, because right now you see that you're not pure of heart. He accepts that desire for purity of heart as worship. If you have a genuine desire to increase in purity of heart, it's a good sign that God has in fact regenerated you by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he has enlivened you supernaturally, that he has rebirthed you by his Spirit. And friends, in fact, and I want you to hear me carefully, purity of heart requires this enlivening, awakening work of God. I like what Charles Quarles says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He puts it like this. Purity in heart is not a qualification for salvation. It is the result of salvation. Yes. Purity of heart is the result of salvation. Purity of heart, we might say, is fruit that results from God rebirthing a person and turning the lights on in the darkened self. To be pure in heart takes a miracle. The miracle of rebirth by the Spirit. Listen carefully. What is the shape of every fallen human heart that is born into this world? Well, let me take you on a little tour of God's assessment of the human heart. And here we should point out that heart, in terms of how the Bible understands heart, is human life in its totality, to quote Walter Eichrott. Heart, in the Bible's understanding of heart, is the center of the entire personality, to quote Don Carson. Heart has to do with feelings, mind, and will. So let me take you on a quick little tour of God's assessment of the fallen, post-Genesis 3, human heart. Okay? Are you ready? Genesis 6-5. Every intention of the thoughts of the human heart is only evil continually. Genesis 8.21, the intention of the human heart is evil from its youth. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 1.21 speaks of darkened and foolish human hearts, and Romans 2.5 talks about hard and impenitent human hearts, and Jesus, in Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20, does not provide us with a very uplifting assessment of the fallen human heart when he says, out of the heart come what? Come evil thoughts... This is Jesus speaking. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, 
theft, false witness, slander. My friend, if you ever receive the foolish advice to just follow your heart, I want you to run as fast as you possibly can in the opposite direction from the person who gives you that sorry advice and never look back. The Bible's diagnosis of our hearts is that they are dark, they are foolish, they are sick, they are deceitful. No wonder David cried out in Psalm 51:10, "Create in me a clean heart, O God." Friend, if you and I are ever going to be pure in heart, as Jesus commends in Matthew 5:8, it is literally going to take a miracle. And the miracle happens to us by the grace and the power and the generosity of God. Way back in Deuteronomy 30, we're talking about only the fifth book of the Old Testament. Way back in Deuteronomy 30, God began to speak about the fact there that he would personally circumcise, is the word that he used, circumcise the human heart. So that we human beings would love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls that we may live. That's Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And then later on in Old Testament history, in the time of Ezekiel the prophet, God promised that he would do what? That he would remove the heart of stone, cold and unfeeling and dead, the heart of stone from us, he would remove that and give us a heart of flesh that we might walk in his statutes and keep his rules and obey them. That's Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God trumpets the good news there. This is a gospel verse in the Old Testament. He says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the truth is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached it, Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, you can start under your own fallen power. You can start to clean your heart. But at the end of your long life, it will be as black as it was at the beginning, perhaps even blacker. No, he said, it is God alone who can do it. And thank God he has promised to do it. The only way in which we can have a clean heart, says Lloyd-Jones, is for the Holy Spirit to enter into us and to cleanse it for us. Jesus says in our beatitude, flourishing are the pure in heart. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, be assured that God is right now at work in you by His Holy Spirit, cleansing your heart, helping you to love holiness more. He is diminishing your allegiances to things other than Him. He is at work killing 
the spiritual contaminants that he finds in you. In sum, he's conforming you to the image of his son. To quote Romans 8.29, because ultimately to be pure in heart is to be like Jesus. Now, believer, please don't misunderstand here. This work of God, purifying your heart, does not mean that you get to just simply sit back and be entirely passive in the matter. It's like we've been learning in our study of David's life on Thursday nights at 7.30, come one, come all, another spiritual commercial there. (laughs) We're starting 2 Samuel this week, so it's a good time to jump in if you've been away. Enough of that. But it's like we've been learning in our study of David's life. God wins the victory in David's battles as the divine warrior who is waging war from heaven. Yes, he does. But David still has to sharpen his sword and plan a ground strategy and fight the battle on the ground. This is the life of faith. In the matter of getting the pure heart that Jesus commends in Matthew 5.8, God does the miraculous work. Yes, he does. We've emphasized that this morning. This morning. But you and I, we have to understand, are still expected to do the work of putting to death the deeds of the body, as it says in Romans 8.13. Mortify, put to death your flesh. We are still expected to strive for holiness, as the writer of Hebrews commands in Hebrews 12.14. So do the work, believer, of guarding your heart, of doing whatever you can to root out the noxious weeds in your heart. Make it a regular practice in your life to search your heart, to ask God to show you where exactly, Lord, is it that my heart is filthy and polluted. Remember in all of this that according to Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in the heart of the believer, which is certainly an incentive, is it not, to mourn more deeply over the sin that remains in the heart and to fight here on the ground the battle of faith to drive out impurities of heart. Perhaps some of the best advice that I ran across this past week concerning this heart work that you and I can do It comes again from Thomas Watson. I've quoted him a lot this morning. Thomas Watson advises us this way, and it was written in the 1600s. I've taken out a lot of the King James these and thous for your benefit. But Watson says this. He encourages us to lay our hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, you who have given me a heart, give me a pure heart. My heart is good for nothing as it is. It defiles everything it touches. Lord, I am not fit to live with this heart, for I cannot honor you, nor to die with it, for I cannot see you. Oh, 
Purge me with hyssop. Let Christ's blood be sprinkled upon me. Let the Holy Spirit descend upon me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That needs to be our prayer. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the undivided in heart. Flourishing are the ones in whom God is working an ever-increasing love for Him. A love for inner and outer matching holiness. Flourishing are the ones who mourn their lack of purity of heart and who are striving for holiness. For, says Jesus at the end of the Beatitude, they shall see God. They shall see God. Now, when I was a little kid, I used to take some money from my allowance sometimes and go to the local drugstore in Edmonton to buy what were called, I don't know if they're available anymore, now and later candies. Anybody familiar with now and laters? No? Maybe it was a Western Canadian thing. The idea was, have one now and save one for later, right? Now and later. Well, when Jesus talks here about the pure in heart seeing God, I think he's talking about both now and later, but mostly later. Seeing God now and seeing God later. Well, how do we see God now? We see him, friends, only in a very limited and very restricted way. We see him, as 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says we see him, which is in a mirror dimly. Or, as the old King James version of the verse had it, through a glass darkly. That's how we see him right now. Our sight of God right now in this time before our bodies are glorified as believers, our seeing is a limited sight that is by faith. Right now, we cannot see God in his blazing glory and survive it. Right now, we see only but dimly. We see his attributes and his characteristics and a measure of his glory in his word. We enjoy communion with him and experience his presence in prayer. We see his fingerprints in the world of nature. We can trace the workings of God through history. We can see God's grace in the pattern of our own lives. So there is a seeing God now, to be sure, but it is limited. Most biblical scholars and commentators agree that the primary focus of Jesus in the second half of our beatitude is not so much on seeing God now, The focus here is more on seeing God later. The pure in heart will be the ones who will see God later. Now listen. Some of you may have had the experience of being away from someone who you love dearly for an extended period of time. The day comes when you're at the airport... And the plane lands, and your loved one comes through the grate, and 
just to see his or her face again, right? What a joy, especially if it's been like a year or two years since you saw your loved one. You embrace. You're so happy to see the person again. How you missed him or her. They were away too long. Well, believer, I want you, if you can, to amplify and to magnify that situation I just described by about 10 million. When it comes to seeing God in the next life, if the face of your loved one brings you joy now, what will it be like to see God? Consider with me the magnitude of what a passage like 1 Corinthians 13:12 says to you, that as a believer, you will see God face to face. Or 1 John 3, 2, you shall see him as he is. Or Revelation 22, verse 4, you will see his face. Think about all the stuff you see in your lifetime on this fallen planet. Now, sure, there's lots of great and wonderful things that we see. And personally, I've had the pleasure of seeing lots of beautiful things. For instance, the the birth moments of all three of my children. The ravishing face of my wife I get to see each and every day. Not to mention, over the years, many viewings of the stunning Rocky Mountains in Alberta, where I grew up. Gorgeous sunsets over the lake at the cabin that my family has had out there. I could go on. But in this lifetime, we also see lots of awful stuff, don't we? If we live any any length of time. I once saw an 11-year-old child die right in front of me. I saw with my eyes and looked at the corpse of my father as he lay in his coffin. I've seen the ravages of addiction close up and personal. I've seen fist fights happen. I've seen horrific bad car accidents. I've seen helpless people in moments where they're just so helpless in a moment of grief. And some of you have seen worse. Imagine what's coming. As believers, we are promised a sight that will be beyond any human description. It's a sight that I think will threaten to literally make us explode with wonder and joy and sheer awe. We will see God, who of us can imagine what that is going to be like? Our current imaginations, I don't think, will ever prepare us for that moment. Again, Thomas Watson did his best when he was alive. He'd probably write it different now that he's been in glory and seen God. But in his life, he did his best to help us imagine the moment. He said this, The sight of God will be a transcendent sight. It will surpass in glory. 
Such glittering beams shall sparkle forth from the Lord Jesus as shall infinitely amaze and delight the eyes of the beholders. Imagine what a sight it will be to see Christ, imagine this, to see Christ wearing the robe of our human nature and to see that nature sitting in glory above the angels. A little later, Watson says this, The sight of Christ will amaze the eye with wonder and ravish the heart with joy. He says, So great is the joy which flows from the sight of God as will make the saints break forth into triumphant praises and hallelujahs. Friends, can you even imagine the satisfaction and the delight and the wholeness that will result when we see God. Well, as we've seen this morning, there is both a commendation and an astounding promise in this sixth beatitude. The commendation is toward purity of heart, and the astounding promise that's connected with heart purity is to see God. None of it will happen if you remain outside of Jesus Christ. The only way you will end up with a pure heart seeing God is to be in Christ. And so Romans 10.9 puts it very plainly to you this morning. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the way to salvation. And if it hasn't already happened, friend, I'm telling you and begging you and pleading with you, turn to Jesus and be saved this very morning. Receive him. His shed blood is the once and all sacrifice that atones for your sin against God. And Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. He is the only way to the Father. Repent of your sin, turn from it, and toward God, and be saved. Now to the believers who are within the sound of my voice, I want to remind you one more time that although the purification of your heart can only come ultimately by God's miraculous power, yet there is the command in Hebrews 12:14, and we best listen to this very carefully and soberly, the command is, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Lord. So the question as we close is, what precisely will striving for holiness and purity of heart look like in your life this week? What are the pollutions in your heart that God has brought to your attention that you, you need to make efforts to deal with? How will you take steps on the ground to fence off sin and giving into temptation? In what ways do you see that clean hands and a pure heart are perhaps disconnected in your life? May God search each and every one of us for his glory and for our ongoing 
benefit as we look forward to the day when, as believers, we will see God. Let's pray. Our gracious, holy, powerful, almighty God, we bow our hearts and our minds before you now and say thank you for this word. Thank you for both um, encouraging us towards something magnificent and warning us against something dire. And I pray, Lord God, that you, Holy Spirit, would drive this word home into the bones and flesh and hearts and minds of each one who has heard it, uh, that you would continue your gracious work of transformation for your glory. Father, be with us now as we uh, join again as a congregation at the table and help us to uh, bring worship appropriate to you as we eat and drink. In Jesus' name, amen. Now hear the Lord's benediction for you. May the Lord show kindness to you. May the Lord grant each of you rest. May grace and peace be to you from God who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Amen.